I want to take the time tonight to talk a little bit about what we learned from Danny's message. And uh, I would take a little preliminary show of hands. How many of you feel like some of the questions and issues are at least moderately still fresh in your mind about unpunishability? Some, not too many, some not. Okay. We have a couple of options. I've got a video that I could play that is a kind of a quick shot highlight video. And I've also got his book here. So I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can read a little bit, uh, from the book before we go on. And, uh, he told a story about discipline in the new covenant. And if you remember, Danny was contrasting, uh, the nature of the new covenant with a paradigm that he calls the punishment paradigm. And the punishment paradigm basically walks out like this. Uh, a person either gets caught or confesses something. And usually they don't confess till they get caught. And then in, in the getting caught, there's an act of repentance, or so-called, meaning where they confess it and they say they're sorry. Then there is a punishment inflicted that's, that is designed to be appropriate to the offense, and and then at a at a de- indeterminate or later to be determined time, when there's sufficient punishment to pay the penalty for what they did, then there is a sense of uh, sometimes a sense of restoration or putting them back in their thing. That's more or less it. Now there's another one here that I want to read to you that has more of the inside context to it, and what it says here is he's got this chart and he says. Um, that the punishment paradigm begins with identity as an orphan or a slave. Then the core belief is of that orphan and slave and of the system of punishment that, that my flaws and failures make me unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. And I deserve disconnection and punishment, and so does everyone else, because they all have flaws and failures. Okay? Then the motive that drives the punishment paradigm is fear of punishment and disconnection or rejection. And then the behavior strategies to, uh, to come out on top of this thing is avoid punishment, either by hiding and fitting in through pleasing, perfection, or performing, or by refusing to fit in, and then you make a place for yourself by rebelling and making your own rules. And then you punish others when they scare, hurt, or offend you. And the goal is always self-preservation. Okay, The New Covenant paradigm, and he goes over to the New Covenant, we'll look at it in just a second, but he makes a point that the New Covenant paradigm, the identity is different. The idea is a son or a daughter of God. That the core belief is that through Jesus I have become a son or a daughter who is worthy of love, belonging, connection, and my mistakes do not disqualify me from the Father's love. Instead, they are precisely where I learn the depth of his love, forgiveness, and commitment to transform me into a mature child who looks like Jesus. The motive in the in the new covenant paradigm is love, and the behavior strategies are to pursue connection even when it's scary, painful, or offensive. And then the goal is connection and belonging. Okay, so how we react to how we react to the world around us, the people around us, because people do have failings and we have failings, is yes, is. Uh, is what the, the paradigm is about and what Danny's thing is about. So this is the story. You guys remember the story he told about his 16-year-old son that didn't come home one night? Do you want me to refresh that story at all? Or? For the record, yes. 
Okay, because in the in the print version, it's real succinct and it's, it's it's fun. So he says, one Friday night when my son Taylor was 16, he didn't come home. His curfew was at midnight. At 1 a.m., I texted him asking when he would be home. No answer. At 3 a.m., I texted, are you on your way or should I call the cops? Nothing. When I got up in the morning just before 7, I asked Sherry, is Taylor in his bed? And she confirmed no. He didn't come home last night. Immediately, Sherry began calling every single parent of Taylor's friends to try and find out where he might be, just the sort of call every parent loves to wake up to on a Saturday morning. An hour later, Taylor walked in the front door. I met him with an outstretched hand and calmly said two words. And by watching Danny, you understand what he means when he says calmly said, right? He has that low voice and keys and phone. (laughs) You know, just, this is not a time for discussion. This is not a time for debate. Just that kind of thing. But chill. So he said, keys and phone. As he handed them over, Taylor launched into excuses. I fell asleep at Jake's house. I didn't have a charger, neither does Jake. There was no way for me to call. I remained wordless, looking at him until he gave up and headed for his bedroom. Five hours later, at one in the afternoon, Taylor reemerged in his underwear, looking like a refugee from a prison camp. Apparently, after, quote, sleeping all night at Jake's, he still had been exhausted. I took one look at his face and thought, that is not the kid I want to talk to. That kid doesn't have a problem. That kid is nowhere near repenting for anything. That kid is a victim. I remained silent, and after a while, he returned to his room. At 3 p.m., one of Taylor's friends called our landline. Seconds after Taylor picked up the phone, I watched the refugee transform back into an animated teenager. Oh, dude, I forgot that was today. All right, okay. Apparently, his friend had reminded him that they had a big video game tournament planned for that night, and they had even bought matching shirts for it. The tournament was supposed to begin at 7 p.m., so Taylor had four hours to try to turn his situation around. Fifteen minutes later, he had showered, dressed, and returned to the living room with his most charming smile pointed at Sherry and me. Now that's a kid I want to talk to right there, I thought. He wants something. He has hope. (laughs) Hey, Dad, Taylor said, I was just wondering if we could talk. This was what I had been praying for. I led him out to the back patio and asked quietly, what did you want to talk about? Oh, I just wanted to say I'm sorry for not coming home last night. Okay. Why does that matter? Well, Taylor looked stumped. I I don't know. I just thought, I mean, you want me to come home at night? I was supposed to come home. Well, what are you sorry about? Well, I'm sorry that I didn't come home. He looked confused. Tay, I said, I guess I just don't understand what you're apologizing for. My tone was calm, quiet, and curious. Well, I'm apologizing because I didn't come home and I was supposed to. Why does that matter? Uh, I don't know. I just thought it did. Well, I'm not really sure what you're apologizing for. Taylor groaned with frustration. Oh, why are you making this so hard? Well, you were the one who wanted to apologize. I'm just wondering what you're apologizing for. You can't even tell me why, so I'm not sure what we're even doing out here. At this point, our conversation was interrupted by a phone call from my lawyer. I'll have to take this call, I told Taylor, but I'll come back. When I finally reconvened, when we finally reconvened, it was 5 p.m., and Taylor was starting to look a little desperate. Okay, Dad, I'm sorry, he began. You guys were probably worried and didn't know if I was dead or alive or anything, and that was causing a lot of stress. I'm sorry for that. Why does it matter if we're up all night worried about where you are? I pressed, why does it matter? 
And he goes, I feel like I'm somebody in your office and you're just asking him all the questions. He burst out. And I go, well, Taylor, I don't understand why you don't understand what the problem is. Well, I don't know what the problem is. I don't know what to say. Do you want some help with that? Taylor paused. Yeah. Okay. Well, Taylor, I'll just tell you how I experienced you. Experienced you. I began looking directly at him, my tone still low and gentle. I feel so disrespected and so reduced in the value of your life. So hurtful. I feel like when you sort through the priorities of things that you're going to take care of, I'm down there around 20. And I don't know how it happened. I don't know how mom and I felt at 20 on your priority list. But last night was an example of that. It seems like you're going to take care of 20 things before you take care of me and mom. You feel like that? Taylor asked, eyes wide. Yeah, I feel like that. Last night was just a glaring example of the value and priority of our relationship to you. And he shook his head and he goes, well, that's not true. You and mom are the most important people in my life. Well, last night was not an example of that, I repeated. And he goes, well, I'm sorry about that, he said sincerely. I'm sorry for being disrespectful and that will never happen again. I looked at him with a hopeful smile and I said, that's really all I needed to hear. Do you want your phone and your keys? An hour later, Taylor took off for his video game tournament, and he never stayed out all night again. So first of all, what happened in this story? Well, I'll point out that what didn't happen. Punishment. I didn't take Taylor's keys and phone to pay him back for scaring and hurting Sherry and me. I did it to create leverage by introducing a consequence for his poor choice. I wanted to remind him of the value and the importance of his relationship with us, so I attracted his attention by hanging on to something he cared about, which happened to be direct benefits of having us as parents until he was willing to push through the tension and pain, find the problem, take personal responsibility for it, and ask for forgiveness. My goal all along was to forgive him, but I knew he wouldn't be able to receive it until he got in touch with what he needed to be what needed to be forgiven. In the end, his choice to walk through the consequence and discover what was really at stake, protecting our connection, reinforced the value of our connection in his heart. When future opportunities to violate connection arose, he had both a new understanding of the value of our connection and new motivation to protect it. That made these opportunities unappealing. What happened in this story was discipline. And though discipline and punishment are often used interchangeably, biblically, they're completely different experiences that produce different results. Okay? So what I wanted to do is I wanted to just quickly lay out a couple of things here. One is that, uh, uh, and this is just a couple of quick word studies so we know what we're talking about. Tuesday we had some discussions about this, and it kind of got bogged down a couple of places of not really knowing what we were talking about when we talked about the things that punishment relates to or doesn't relate to. So punishment is found, this surprised me, seven times in the New Testament, and it's uh, in the New American Standard. It's found 11 times in the NIV. Go figure. Anyhow. It's tra- but that's the, the, the seven uses of punishment is translated from six different words. So I'm not going to do a huge word study, but there's a word colossus, and then there's there's uh, five other words. So uh, again, punishment is not the universal, super prevalent principle that you might think in the scripture. All right. Then there's two passages of scripture I want to read to you that kind of set the stage. And, and um, the one use of uh, colossus, or the two uses of colossus in the scriptures. Uh, that, that is translated punishment in the New American Standard. One of them is about uh, 
a passage in Matthew that talks about eternal punishment or the fires of eternal punishment or something like that. And the other one is here in, in 1 John chapter 4. I chose the 1 John 4 not because I'm a wimp, but because I don't have time to break out the uses and, and where it goes with all the other words. So here it is. Uh, this is beginning in verse 17. It says, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Then it goes on to connect love with our relationships around us again. And it says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So the thing I wanted to point out about that passage of Scripture relative to punishment is that punishment is directly associated as a byproduct of fear. So whatever we think it is, I want us to give a certain amount of weight to what the Scripture describes it as, which is a byproduct of fear. Uh, Fear involves punishment, and punishment is sort of the byproduct. Then I want to read, just briefly, as if we don't already know it, and I'm sure you guys do, but I'm going to read the uh, Hebrews passage about the New Covenant. And so it begins in Hebrews 10. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. All right, so if, we, if we're willing to, as, as I've tried to encourage us to be for a while, if we're willing to take those criteria as the basis for the new covenant, there really isn't any room in those things for punishment. So it would have to be imported in to those criteria somehow. Uh, there's identity in there. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. There's uh, conscience and guidance. Now, one place that I could imagine a person envisioning punishment is that even though the law is in our hearts and written in our minds, that we could still see the law as a thing that if you violate it, you deserve punishment. So we'll have to probably talk about that if we need to ever. But when you go from there, everybody's going to know me from the least to the greatest. And then the thing that normally is associated with an appropriate trigger to be responded to or an appropriate action to be responded to by punishment is our transgressions. But it says that our transgressions are going to be greeted with mercy and that our sins are going to be remembered no more. So when Danny says that there's, you know, he, he creates this contrast between new covenant relationships and, and management of life and so on, and the other, I think there's something to it in Scripture. You can't really find a punishment component in the new covenant. Okay? Make sense? All right. All right, so just this will be quick. So here's what a, the def- definition of punishment is. The infliction or imposition of a penalty as retribution for an offense. Okay? So when we're talking about punishment, this is just the dictionary definition of it. It is the infliction or the imposition of a penalty as retribution for an offense. So in in the story with Danny's kid, if he had grounded him for a, a week or taken his car away for the summer or those kinds of things... That is in the category of an imposition as a penalty for something. All right. Now, 
the idea that I want us to talk about tonight is the uh, contrast between punishment and four other concepts or terms. One of them is repentance. Now, we don't have to go in great detail about this. Uh, there's an Old Testament word, uh, shub, which means to turn back or to repent, to turn back into or to return. There's a couple of other Old Testament words, but they all essentially mean the same thing. They have something to do with a going back or a turning back or a pulling back. And in the New Testament, there are two words. They're both obviously related, uh, metanoeo and metanoia. And there's a couple passages here uh, that, that can cover that. The uh, Mark 1, 14 and 15, I'll read that real fast just to kind of set the stage on what we're talking about when we talk about repentance. I have a lot of tabs. Does that work? Okay. <clears throat> the importance of this little verse, Mark uh, uh, 1, 14, 15, is this. Now, after John had been taken custody, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, saying, the time of fulfillment of the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the thing I want us to see is that repentance is located with a mental activity, not an emotional response. Repent and believe, something that's being declared. Make sense? And then the other one is Second Timothy. That is somewhere here. Oops, wrong way. There it is. Okay, so the one in Second Timothy uh, says this. So he's instructing Timothy, and it says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Who perhaps God may grant them, the ones that are in opposition, repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So again, it's linked to the mind. And then one of the things that I think this helps us understand that's different is, uh, and that was the uh, second one there, I think, yeah, the metanoia, is that we have a tendency to think that repentance is like the emotional sorrow over something. And I think that that's a false kind of notion. So uh, we'll look at this next word over here, which is related. So the suggestion that I want to make is that punishment and repentance don't, don't relate to one another, hardly at all. Forgiveness... I think we, we know that there's, there's a bunch of words in the Old Testament, uh, three of them there that are used. Uh, they all mean something like to forgive, to pardon, to lift up, to carry. And then in the New Testament, uh, I learned this a long time ago, it, but it really means to let something go. Forgiveness. Take your, take your hands off. That's where that kind of illustration of taking your hands off. I, uh, did a funeral for a, a little baby that only lived for four hours. And I was totally shocked to, to, um, realize that the word that Jesus uses when he says, let the little children come to me or suffer the little children come to me is the same word as we have for forgiveness. It means to, to let somebody out of a thing. Um, it's a release from legal or moral obligation, consequences and freedom. Okay. You guys good on that one? Huh? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, punishment does create that moral, that moral thing for sure. And so this does release it. Let me see if I can find a little thing here. That verse in, uh, gee, Larry. 
Yeah, no, I won't punish you guys instead. So the verse there in 1018 says this, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So here we're not talking about an idea. We're talking about something that binds you, something that goes in. Okay, So where this is basically a mental thing that's going on, this forgiveness is the release from the physical constraint, the physical binding and bondage. Um, that Genesis account's an interesting one. When, uh, when, uh, Jacob died, uh, Israel died, and his boys were confronted with Joseph down there, they were afraid Joseph was going to kill him. And so they actually lied and made up something that their father said, but that something was a request for forgiveness, and Joseph lived it out perfectly. He said, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to love you guys. I'm, God, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. But that was the words uh, uh, about forgiveness there, the Nasa word. All right, so it makes sense. We're talking about repentance as something that goes on in a decision. Here we're talking about forgiveness where a person is released from an obligation. And the next one is restoration. Uh, so again, interestingly, Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times, the same Old Testament word shub is used for to restore, to turn back. And the definition of restoration is the act of returning something to a former owner, place, state, or condition. So, like if, if you have a, a marriage that gets restored, it's on the rocks, gets restored, the marriage goes back to its good condition. If you have a painting that gets restored, it's put back in its original place. So restoration is the returning of something, the turning back of something. Okay? Make sense? We don't need to go. I think that's... And then the other aspect I want to plug in here is just the idea of full relationship and identity. And the story that I thought about was in Philemon, and I do want to read that one because it's just precious. So let me see if I can get back to Philemon here. You guys know the story, how Paul was in prison, and he was ministered to by uh, Onesimus, who was a runaway slave from the Philemon. And so Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. So most everybody believes that Onesimus found Jesus in whatever interaction or contact he had with Paul while Paul was in prison. So I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel, but without your consent... I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So do you see how it's the, 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 this identity thing, uh, restoration, forgiveness, all that stuff leads to identity?